The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Chapter 15. The Scouring of the Tomb Finally, there was one more room to clear. A small space leading off from the antechamber. This annex was a kind of storehouse. It contained miscellaneous objects. Goods that did not fit elsewhere, or did not have a specific home. Let's cover it briefly. The annex was notable for its size. Compared to the other chambers, it was small, And yet, this hall contained a vast array of goods. In total, more than 2,000 objects emerged from this chamber. In such a small space, that was remarkable. How did they all fit? Of all the rooms in Tutankhamun's burial, the annex was the most disorderly. You might even say it was chaos. Originally, the tomb had a clear layout, but at some point after the funeral, robbers had penetrated the chambers. In the course of their work, thieves ransacked the annex. They tossed objects aside in their search for valuables. More on that later. And as a result, this chamber was utterly trashed. Like a teenager's bedroom, it held a vast assortment of items, piled up wherever they would fit. The annex is a small room. We don't know the name of it, at least not for sure. It's possible the Egyptians called it Ta Wesket Der Sebiu, aka the Hall of Repelling the Rebels. What does that mean? Well, the rebels, Sebiu, are a broad concept, the ancient Egyptian version of traitors. Basically, anyone who rejected royal authority, rejected divine authority, or rejected Ma'at was a rebel, quote-unquote. So broadly speaking, the hall of repelling the rebels was a defensive space, a place to repel or destroy any who threatened the king. This might be the annex's name, but we can't be sure. The text, Hall of Repelling the Rebels, comes from a box. But that box wasn't found in the annex, it was found in the corridor leading out of the tomb. Perhaps the box came from the annex, looted during the robberies. If so, It is possible that Tiny Chamber was the house of repelling the rebels. That is speculative, but it's our best guess for now. Like the other chambers, the annex was closed and sealed in antiquity. Robbers had broken through the door at the bottom, but most of the doorway and the plaster was intact. From that, Carter and his colleagues could identify the seals, the original stamps used to close the doors. Among various impressions, some of the seals said, quote, The king of southern and northern Egypt, Neb Kaparu Ra, Tutankhamun, one who spent his life making images of the gods, that they, the deities, might give him incense, purifications, and offerings every day. Neb Kaparu Ra, 
who fashioned a body for Osiris and built his house like it was in the beginning. End quote. I like these texts. They capture a sense of Tutankhamun's government, the public agenda or priorities of his regime. In previous episodes, we have seen how this king commissioned beautiful statues or bodies for the gods, how Tutankhamun and his advisors spent big on the temples and their treasures, episode 145. Well, now we can see how that policy became part of the king's legacy. On the walls of his tomb, royal seals emphasized Tutankhamun's achievements. If these hieroglyphs, or the memory, endured, the king could enjoy a reputation as one who honoured the gods, a pharaoh who gave the deities new forms and life. The annex was a mess. Compared to other chambers, this one seemed totally disordered. Clearly, robbers had ransacked the space, throwing objects around carelessly as they sought valuable treasures. But other rooms, like the antechamber and treasury, had faced similar treatment, but the royal officials had tidied those ones up. When they repaired the monument, sealing the tomb again, the ancient inspectors had fixed some of the chaos. But they didn't do that for the annex. They left this room as it was, a jumble of disorder. Why? Well, perhaps this chamber was less important in a religious sense. The other halls had symbolic functions. The antechamber, or hall of waiting, would impede any intruders. The burial chamber, or house of gold in which the deceased rests, was the heart of the tomb. And the treasury, or house of silver, facilitated the king's resurrection as Osiris. So at least three of the rooms had vital functions in a religious sense. Maybe the annex, the kind of storeroom, simply wasn't important enough. When it came to clearing the tomb, the inspectors may have focused on the more significant chambers, and in their hurry, they let the annex be. That is hypothetical, we haven't proved it. But it could be an explanation. Anyway, enough about the context. Let's get into some details. How Carter approached this jumbled, messy space, and a couple of small but cool items found in the hall. The annex does tell some interesting stories. Let's explore it quickly. For Carter, the chaos of the annex was a challenge. Perhaps the greatest challenge yet. The other chambers had been hard, but at least those rooms had space to move. And broadly speaking, they were orderly. By contrast, the annex was tiny, and every part of the floor was covered in miscellaneous goods. Looking at the mountain of artifacts, Carter lamented, quote, When one peers into a chamber arranged and sealed by pious hands, one is filled with emotion. It seems as if the very nature of the place and objects hushes the spectator into silent reverence. But here, in this chamber, where nothing but confusion prevailed, one's mind became preoccupied with the problem, how it could best be dealt with. End quote. You can almost hear the weariness in Carter's writing. By 1927, five years after discovering the tomb, the excavator was tired. He had worked feverishly and navigated many controversies, disputes, crises, and challenges. I've touched on a few of these, mainly the controversies, but excavating Tutankhamun's monument was an enormous undertaking. 
not just archaeologically, but politically, socially, emotionally. Many times, Carter faced great challenges from outside forces. After five years of toil, stress, anxiety, even anger, the Egyptologist sounds exhausted. Can we blame him? And yet, Carter would not stop until the work was complete. Although the annex was a horrendous mess, he rolled up his sleeves and got to work. But the annex did present a unique challenge. How would they deal with it? The team approached this chamber slowly. First, Carter focused on small objects littering the floor. He had to do this by hand, lying on his belly and crouching through the doorway. At one point, the excavator had to lie on a plank suspended over the floor. The plank was secured by ropes at each end, and those ropes fed back through the door to the antechamber. They were held by, quote, three or four men standing in the antechamber. In other words, the work was tricky, and Carter had to rig up a makeshift device just to start clearing. At first, the excavators could not even enter the annex, lest they trample or destroy small objects. The floor was covered in countless items, and one at a time, these objects had to be removed. To make matters worse, the chaotic pile-up that dominated the room was a serious problem. At each stage, the excavators had to make sure, if they removed one object, would it cause others to shift? If they were not careful, the removal of small items could cause an avalanche of wood, stone, metal, and pottery. This alpine mound of objects dominating the annex could easily have been a catastrophe. So, Carter and his team worked slowly, methodically, but they got it done. Over a few weeks in December 1927, they carefully removed every object from the room. Carter's journal is surprisingly brief when it comes to the annex. He noted the date when excavations started, November 27th, and he noted the date of completion, December 15th. In between, he barely recorded a thing. Carter still took notes on every object, and he documented the discoveries. But his personal diaries, his journals recording the excavation, get briefer, less detailed. Again, you get the sense that five years into the work, Carter was getting tired. The annex is a curious room. We have an idea of its name, the Hall of Repelling the Rebels, and we know that it was a mess. But overall, there is not too much to say. The objects in here are interesting, but slightly academic. Most of them are jugs, boxes, a bit of furniture. Not much to dazzle the eyes or the brain. That being said, there are a couple of items that are worth discussing. Very quickly, let's sneak a peek. More than 2,000 objects filled the annex. Among that jumble, a few were quite interesting. Most notably, there was a set of weapons, Tutankhamun had many weapons in his tomb, and I've covered some of them previously. But I'd like to talk about a few more. You see, the annex held a set of swords and shields belonging to the king. These are cool objects. The annex held two swords. They have the same design, a long curved blade with a kind of hook near the hilt. We call these swords the kopesh or kepesh. They are crazy recognisable. 
If you have ever seen a movie set in ancient Egypt, there is probably a soldier carrying one of these swords. Their silhouette is distinctive, and that wicked curve is cool. The Kopesh swords of Tutankhamun come in two sizes. One is large, about 60 centimeters long, or two feet, if you include the handle. The sword is made of bronze, a solid piece of metal, forged and shaped into a weapon. According to Howard Carter's notes, the blade on this sword was surprisingly blunt. He thought maybe it was more of a crushing weapon than a cutting one. Either way, the item is heavy and impressive. You could probably do serious damage with it. The second Kopesh is small, just 41 centimeters long, or 1.3 feet. Again, it is bronze, 100% metal, just like the big one. But this sword is smaller in every dimension, which suggests that the weapon is a secondary tool to hold in your offhand. Or maybe it was Tutankhamun's childhood sword. Even as a youth, Tutankhamun would need to learn and demonstrate skills in fighting. Perhaps this sword was his marker as the conquering pharaoh, quote-unquote. Whatever its purpose, the child-sized kopesh is cool. You can imagine the young king, ten years old, swinging this around a training yard. To any wandering spirits that mean harm, stay back. Tutankhamun was armed. Then we have the king's shields. I think these are really cool. Four of the shields are functional and kind of basic. They are large rectangles with a rounded top and covered in animal skins. Nothing fancy, no decorations. They were utilitarian in the best sense. Suitable for battle, good for protection. Did Tutankhamun ever use these shields in a fight? Unclear. Maybe in training, and maybe he went on campaign once or twice. We do not have any direct evidence on that question. At the very least, the presence of this shields meant that the king could fight, if necessary, in the afterlife. That would come in handy on the dangerous roads of the Duat. So four of the shields are functional. The other four are decorative. These ones are not solid pieces of wood. Instead, they are carved out like a stencil to form images. On one shield, we find a picture of Tutankhamun reaching out to grab lions by the tail. The animals struggle, but the king raises a sword, his kopesh. The pharaoh is ready to strike. Behind Tutankhamun, a vulture raises its wings in praise, and above, a sun disk with large wings forms the top of the shield. In other words, this piece is more decorative, probably a ceremonial object. With large gaps in the wood, shields like this would be useless in a fight, but they would make a splendid show on parade. So maybe these were Tutankhamun's public display shields, the sort used in processions and grand appearances of pharaonic power. Finally, we have a pair of sandals. That may not sound like much, but these ones are cool. The sandals complement the weapons and the shields. You see, they bear images of prisoners on the soles. On the base of each sandal, a pair of men stand back to back. The two men are distinct. One comes from the south, one comes from the north. They have stereotypical features, costumes, and hairstyles. And they both have their arms tied behind their backs. Above and below the men, symbols of bows appear. 
In other words, these sandals present the enemies of Egypt, the foreigners from other kingdoms whom the pharaoh should destroy. Well, Tutankhamun could do that just by walking. Because the prisoners appear on the soles of his shoes, when he walked, he stepped on them repeatedly. In other words, these random sandals may not seem like much, but they give an insight to Egyptian attitudes. Tutankhamun, the king of southern and northern Egypt, should defeat all enemies. He should overpower them and trample them underfoot. Well, he could do that, literally, with these sandals. It's a small thing, but I think it's quite cool. Now, those are just a couple of the 2,000 objects found in the annex. I really wish I could go deeper. There are some beautiful items here. But many of those objects would do better in a visual format. If I ever get around to making YouTube videos, I will cover some of these in greater detail. For now, we really must move on. The annex may seem like a jumbled, disorderly mess, hardly worth your time compared to the amazing treasures. But for Carter, the annex was surprisingly informative. Beneath the chaos, there were glimpses of order. Studying the objects and their location, Carter figured out the story of this chamber. He determined the way that, originally, the items had been stacked up, how the mourners burying Tutankhamun had filled the chamber with goods. They grouped the items together by their type and material, so wooden items went on top of the stone ones, not the other way around. From that, Carter got a basic sense of the layout. Apparently, the annex was furnished as follows. Quote, Firstly, wine jars were placed on the floor at the northern end. Then, at least 35 alabaster vessels containing oils were stacked beside. And on top, there were fruit baskets. The remaining space was used for other furniture, piled on top of those. End quote. So, working backwards, Carter could undo the chaos and figure out the natural state of the room. In the process, he came to understand the layout of the chamber, and which objects were maybe significant. He also figured out the story of robberies in the annex and the tomb. This was an important part of Tutankhamun's afterlife. Invasions, violations of the monument, could have been disastrous for the pharaoh's soul. By reconstructing these events, Carter gave a sense of how the thieves threatened pharaoh's immortality, and how the officials saved the tomb from destruction. By Carter's reconstruction, the robberies happened in two phases. Two separate incidents, separated by weeks, months, or even years. Each robbery had specific goals, and they left specific traces. Let's explore them. The first robbery happened soon after the funeral. Perhaps a few days, maybe a couple of weeks after Tutankhamun was buried, thieves broke into the tomb. At this point, the corridor leading to the chambers was still clear. It had not been filled with rubble or debris. The tomb was buried and hidden, but the inner halls were clear. So the robbery was pretty easy to effect. At some point, thieves broke through the door leading to the tomb. They went along the passageway, then broke through the second door, the one leading to the antechamber. This group worked quickly. 
digging through the door, they focused on two areas, the antechamber itself and the annex. The thieves went in and began to rifle through boxes. They took metal, leather, linen, always useful, and they took oils. Jars of cosmetics, unguents, and ointments were a prime target. They were valuable and hard to acquire, but they would also rot quickly if left alone. So in the first robbery, the thieves probably targeted the perishable material. The high-quality oils, fats, makeup, anything they could acquire to use and sell quickly. The team worked in haste. Apparently, they were in a rush. Fair enough. But in their haste, they ransacked the annex. They threw boxes and items around to find the valuables more quickly. There was no time for caution, no time to do it carefully. They pushed, pulled, and grabbed as quickly as they could. However, the group fled the tomb as quickly as they came. Perhaps the royal guards showed up, or maybe the robbers grabbed as much as they could and got out before discovery. Either way, the thieves ran. In their haste, they dropped bits and pieces in the corridor. Fragments of gold, an arrowhead made of bronze, things like these turned up in the excavations. It seems that the robbers grabbed as much as they could, but in their haste to escape, they dropped plenty of trinkets. Now this first robbery seems suspicious. Clearly, the thieves knew exactly what they wanted, and exactly where they would find it. With that in mind, we must wonder, were some of these robbers involved in Tutankhamun's funeral? Did porters, carpenters, or even priests get involved in this crime? The speed of their work and the targeting they use maybe reveals their knowledge. A few of these robbers had probably been there before. Whoever they were, the thieves took a few items. Metal, linen, leather, oils, unguents, cosmetics things that were small, easy to hide, and valuable in day-to-day use. Presumably, they would use or sell these items among their friends and relatives. But for now, they went in, got their shopping list, and got out. When this first robbery was discovered, the royal officials took action. They tidied up the antechamber, but not the annex. They resealed the doors leading to the tomb. And they filled the corridor with rubble. Masons hauled baskets of limestone into the passage. Perhaps this limestone was the debris left over from construction of the tomb itself. Basket after basket, the stone chips went in, blocking up the corridor and barring future access. As they did this, the porters dumped material on some of those trinkets that the thieves had dropped. That's how we know what they stole in the first robbery and what they left in their escape. So the extra layer of security ironically preserved a record of the crime. The officials closed the doors, stamped their seals on the repairs, and left it at that. Hopefully, this would keep the tomb secure. Of course, we know it did not. For a few months, maybe a couple of years, the burial slept in peace. Tutankhamun was undisturbed. But, almost inevitably, thieves entered once again. At some point, a second group broke into the tomb. This time, they had to really work for their prize. The rubble filling the corridor was a massive barrier. Having overseen the excavation of that rubble, Howard Carter estimated that digging a tunnel through the debris would take maybe seven or eight hours. So 
this was not a quick job. The second robbery required preparation and planning. The thieves probably had to bribe or distract any guards. To get enough time, they needed an empty valley. How they did that, we don't know. But eventually, they got their chance. One night, the robbers started digging. And seven or eight hours later, they repeated their predecessor's accomplishment. They broke through the door, entered the antechamber, and started to rob the tomb. This time, the thieves went straight for the burial chamber. They broke a hole in the door. A hole that, 3,000 years later, Carter would use to enter the space. They went past the shrines and into the treasury. Here, the robbers began to feast on the gold, silver, and precious stones that formed Tutankhamun's jewellery. When Carter opened the treasury, he found many empty boxes. Some containers had labels on top saying things like jewellery, but they had been robbed of their valuables. By studying these labels, Carter estimated that robbers took 60% of the jewellery in the tomb. They picked up necklaces, metal pots, bracelets, bangles, rings, and more. Basically, it seems that the second group of robbers wanted metal. They went through the tomb, stripping the gold, copper, bronze, and silver from small objects. Now once again, this group worked in haste. There was no time to attack the larger treasures. Statues, ceremonial ornaments, religious items, those would have to wait. In one case, the thieves opened a small shrine, but when they saw its contents, a golden statue of a god, they left it. Maybe those items were too hot, too hard to sell. Maybe they wanted the easy pickings first. Either way, the group was systematic. They took the smaller items, things they could pick up, hide, and dispose of quickly. They were remarkably thorough. Again, in their haste, the thieves left clues of their work. At one point, a robber collected a bunch of rings, golden finger bands belonging to the king, The thief snatched these items up, and he wrapped them in linen. The thief used one of Tutankhamun's scarves to bundle up the rings. This made them easy to carry, and if necessary, hide. Well, it didn't work. At some point, the thief was stopped. Maybe the guards apprehended him. Maybe he tried to sell the rings and got caught. Either way, this bundle came back to the tomb. A royal official brought the scarf to the antechamber and stuffed it into a box. They did not unwrap it or remove the rings. Instead, they shoved the scarf and its contents into a container. There it stayed for 3,000 years, a tiny clue of ancient theft. There were a couple of other traces besides the rings. In the annex, one of the boxes had a footprint on the surface. The box had been thrown to one side in the jumble and apparently the robber had stepped on it while trying to reach something else. The thief was barefoot, and the dirt on their sole left a distinct mark on the box. Again, another clue of the robberies. My favourite trace comes from a jar. In the annex, a white stone jug was lying in a corner. Originally, this jug held some kind of fatty cream or oil, but the robbers had scooped that material out to steal it. When they did so, the thief left their fingerprints in the residue. Hypothetically, if we could go back in time, 
it might be possible to find the culprit and ID them. The robberies were thorough, but they failed to ruin the tomb. Apparently, these two incidents were bad for the smaller items, jewellery, pieces of metal, and for perishables, cosmetics, oils, unguents, etc. Overall, though, the royal security held firm. The tomb of King Tutankhamun remained mostly intact. And after the second robbery, the tomb lay untouched for millennia. How? Well, the answer is surprisingly simple. Periodically, the Valley of the Kings will play host to torrential rainstorms. Egypt is famous for not having that much rain, but 3,000 years ago, the climate was a bit wetter, and heavy rains do still happen. These storms can be incredibly focused, huge amounts of water dumping in a small area very quickly. Carter had seen these firsthand, and he recorded their effect. Apparently, A torrential rainstorm could easily create a flash flood, a torrent of water rushing down a valley. That water picked up the dust and mud as it passed, and apparently the tomb of King Tutankhamun was buried by one of these floods. At some point, a heavy wash of water, dirt, and sand had flooded over the tomb. That material piled up, and it also obliterated any traces of the monument beneath. Then, humans added their own layer. A century or two after Tutankhamun, royal workers were digging another monument in the valley. And as they dug their tomb, they were dumping their rubble down the hillside. Well, that rubble happened to fall over the tomb of Tutankhamun. So a combination of natural flooding and then human excavation caused a massive pile of debris over the burial. As a result, the tomb of King Tutankhamun was hidden from human eyes. Thanks to nature and human deeds, Tutankhamun was preserved. It's a wonderful but lucky circumstance. Quite easily, Tutankhamun could have been robbed like all the other tombs, but the placement of his monument and random events that came later served to bury his tomb. It may seem absurdly simple, But it happened, and it worked quite well. Of course, that series of natural circumstances does raise questions. What other tombs might lie undiscovered in the region? Excavators are always curious to cover ground in the Valley of the Kings. Maybe something has been missed. Maybe other tombs went missing, just like Tutankhamun's. The circumstances in which the tomb was robbed, then buried, and then covered over do raise that tantalizing possibility. But I digress. The annex was a small room filled with a jumble of objects. It may not seem like much, but it was quite informative. Howard Carter and other historians could learn a lot from the objects found in this room. Today, we can identify the provisions like wine, oils, and creams that a pharaoh might require. We can determine the order in which certain chambers were stocked. And studying the robberies, we can learn about the priorities of ancient thieves. The robbers clearly valued certain things above others. Today, the golden coffins and mummy mask might seem amazing, but to the ancients, those were high-profile, dangerous targets. By comparison, a jar of ointment or oils or a bracelet made of bronze or metal, that was probably more valuable. It was easier to hide, 
easier to sell, and possibly easier to use. So, we can learn something about the mindset of Tutankhamun's people. Yes, the golden treasures are fabulous. But for the average Egyptian, there were other priorities. And thanks to the deeds of those robbers, we can get a glimpse of their mindset. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Chapter 16. The End of Excavation The annex was the last room to clear. By December 1927, Carter had finished removing objects from the tomb. Five years had passed since he first opened the monument. In that time, the Egyptologist had navigated political crises, labour disputes, the death of a close friend, public controversy, and media attention and always the anxiety of responsibility. Carter was the caretaker, the custodian of a magnificent treasure, a piece of human history 3,000 years old. Carter was responsible for protecting that history, and ensuring it survived to educate, inform, and dazzle future generations. It must have been a heavy burden, and as the excavation season of 1927 came to its end, Carter seems to have been quite tired. Carter's records of this season, the last season in the tomb itself, are surprisingly short. In the journals for spring 1927, Carter wrote his last summary of the excavation. His words were simple, Spring, final objects conserved for shipment to Cairo. End quote. That's it. It almost seems anticlimactic, but imagine his exhaustion, and within those few words, there is, perhaps, a sense of relief. After years of constant studying, recording, measuring, and drawing, Carter could finally put down his pen, and with a simple flourish, he could close the book on his excavation. I imagine there was great relief at that moment. So in 1927, Carter's work in the tomb was done. It had taken five years, but the monument was cleared, the items were in storage, and ready for examination. In scientific terms, phase one of the project was finally complete. Now, Carter started on phase two, the work of conservation. He would need to study each item to ensure they received proper treatment and restoration. Amazingly, this next phase would last just as long as the first. Carter spent five years clearing the tomb. It would take five more to finish preserving the treasures. From 1927 to 1932, 
Carter worked on preserving Tutankhamun's treasures. In Luxor, the archaeologist carefully studied each item individually. He took notes and made repairs to the fragile objects. Carter did not work alone. He had help. Assistants like Harry Burton and Alfred Lucas joined him each season. The work was difficult, and Carter's journals give a succession of troubles, tribulations, complaints, and issues. Occasionally, he describes the work as tedious, and complains about stupidity from some of the local workers. In short, Carter seemed to get grumpier as time went by. Maybe after five years, he was running out of energy and patience. Also, the excitement of excavation was fading. There was nothing new to discover, no tantalizing opportunities on the horizon. So there was nothing to look forward to, no anticipation that could stoke the fires and get him through the difficult parts. Sadly, Carter had done the fun part. Now he had to face the grind, the long hours in heat and dust recording countless items. Year after year, Carter did the job. This was slow work. The team had to treat each object individually, assess its condition, and figure out the best approach. As you can imagine, these long lab sessions were painstaking. It would take Carter a long time to complete all of this, and always that responsibility lingered over his work. Along the way, Carter had other jobs to attend. The main one was publicity. To keep the general public interested, Carter was obliged to give lectures around the world about his discovery. Newspapers could record his words, and radio could broadcast his voice. But the public still wanted to see him in person. And so, Carter dutifully went out on tours, presenting the excavation to crowded halls and audiences. Surprisingly, the lectures went quite well. When giving a talk in London, Carter received a glowing review from The Guardian. Quote, The audience that filled the new Oxford Theatre this afternoon represented all classes of the community, who have been thrilled as they watched the progress of Carter's work. Members of scientific societies, representatives of the museums, personal friends of Lord and Lady Carnarvon, travellers who knew Egypt well, and people whose minds had only recently been opened to the wonders of Egypt. All of them listened for two hours to the wonderful story. Mr. Carter is an excellent lecturer. Step by step, the audience followed the expedition's work. End quote. Carter became a skilled public speaker, and his lectures had broad appeal. His tour of Canada and the United States sold out in advance. Today, that may seem unremarkable, but at the time, it was noteworthy. In fact, the demand was so great that Carter had to repeat his lectures. He would give a talk one day, and then do it again the next, just to accommodate the public demand. Basically, Carter had a dose of celebrity. His 15 minutes of fame brought great attention and revenue to his pocket. Finally, there was writing. Between 1922 and 1933, Carter published three books about the tomb of Tutankhamun. They described the discovery and antechamber, the burial chamber, and the annex and treasury. In these books, Carter covered the broad strokes of his work, and he did a good job all around. 
Carter's books on Tutankhamun are informative, engaging, and personable, and they're still in print today. Nevertheless, these three books were insufficient. They gave the essentials, and you can learn a lot from them, but academic, scientific publishing requires a lot more detail. Before Carter could finish his work, he would need to publish the tomb in scientific terms. He would need to present every object with drawings, measurements, descriptions of the items, copies of the hieroglyphs, translations, photographs, references to earlier scholarship, explanations of the context, where it was found, what its condition was, and how they conserved it, and many more details besides. Basically, having carefully recorded and documented every item for the excavation, Carter now had to do that all over again, only this time he had to turn it into a detailed academic discussion. Carter never achieved this project. While he started working on a publication, the scope of the work was simply too great. Nicholas Reeves, in The Complete Tutankhamun, summarizes the problem nicely, quote, The years after 1933 were occupied with the preparation of the definitive six-volume work on the discovery. But progress was slow, and reading through Carter's notes, one gains the impression that the task to which he had given his life, at the end, proved too much for him. End quote. Ultimately, the job of analysing and publishing the tomb of Tutankhamun exceeded Carter's energy. This seems understandable. For one thing, Carter spent 10 years just excavating and preserving the monument. His work on the tomb was stressful, labour-intensive, frequently frustrating, and above all, long. And Carter was not a young man. When he discovered the tomb, he was already in his 40s. And you can imagine how 10 years of politics, digging, careful study, and laboratory work wound up exhausting the scholar. In fact, in 1933, just after he published the third volume of his book, Carter fell ill, and he remained sickly for the rest of his life. So exhaustion, overwork, and the massive volume of material all came together to defeat the Egyptologist. We should have empathy for Carter's predicament. The job of publishing this tomb was enormous probably too big for one person. In fact, the tomb of King Tutankhamun has proved insurmountable to generations of scholars. Even large institutions, well-funded and resourced, have struggled with this task. In the 1950s, the Griffith Institute at Oxford University began publishing parts of Tutankhamun's tomb. Different scholars, each specialists in their field, tackled different groups of objects. The results were commendable. Starting in 1963, the Griffith Institute published excellent works, like hieratic inscriptions from the tomb of Tutankhamun, composite bows from the tomb of Tutankhamun, chariots and related equipment from the tomb, the corpus of hieroglyphic inscriptions, in German, the sarcophagus in the tomb of Tutankhamun, and many others. These books continue to appear slowly. The latest volume came out in 2019, and a book on Tutankhamun's coffins has been in preparation for more than 20 years. The point is, this is a huge job. 
Even an organization as experienced as the Griffith Institute must work for decades to publish the items. With that in mind, I'm not sure Carter could have finished his work. The task of studying Tutankhamun's artifacts, his tombs, and all the historical material, and then bringing that together in an academic discussion, that might simply be too much for one person. So in the later years of his life, Carter worked on a publication of the tomb. Unfortunately, this task was too great. And even now, a hundred years later, the contents of the burial are only available in small publications here and there. If I had to guess, I would say about 60% of the objects, at least, still lack a proper study. Egyptologists do what they can, but time and money are short. So experts chip away at the task. Like masons building a pyramid, they build the study of Tutankhamun's tomb one article or one book at a time. Maybe in the next hundred years, we will collect the full scientific corpus. Today, it would probably take a huge investment to organize the work. Hmm, maybe we should crowdfund this. Who's interested? Carter finished clearing the tomb in 1927. Five years later, he finished the work of preservation and restoration for the treasures. So, in 1932, approximately, work on the tomb of Tutankhamun came officially to its end. Ideally, Howard Carter should have settled into a comfortable and prosperous retirement. He could spend his days working on the publication and generally enjoying an esteemed reputation. For a while, this was the case. Unfortunately, just seven years after finishing the work, Howard Carter died. The excavator of Tutankhamun's tomb passed to the West on March 2nd, 1939. His death was a result of Hodgkin lymphoma, a type of cancer. His funeral was small, just nine people attended and the aftermath of Carter's death was quietly controversial. In his last will and testament, Carter directed that his antiquities collection should go, quote, as soon as possible to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You see, over the years, Carter had bought and sold Egyptian relics, usually from the markets of Luxor and Cairo. In that time, he had built up a small personal collection of antiquities. But when Carter's representatives examined his collection, they found a few other objects. Among the various antiquities purchased from markets, there were some items that clearly came from the tomb of Tutankhamun. These were small, a shabti, a cup, a glass, an amulet, some golden nails, and a couple of trinkets. But Many of them had the cartouche of King Tutankhamun. This was a controversy to which there was no alibi. Apparently, Howard Carter did keep a few items from the burial of Tutankhamun. Yes, they were small, but that doesn't matter. Without claim, and certainly without permission, Carter stole small items from the tomb. Throughout this series, I have noted those questionable aspects of Carter's record. They are an unfortunate blemish on his career and legacy. 
In many respects, Carter was an excellent scholar and archaeologist. He was careful, meticulous, and respectful. And yet, even he succumbed to the same temptation as countless others before. He purchased, or even stole, ancient artifacts for his private collection. It is a blot on his legacy. In case anyone is running to their keyboard, please rest assured, 99% of the time I have the utmost respect and appreciation for Carter's work and skill. Compared to his predecessors and colleagues, Howard Carter was diligent and honest. But he wasn't perfect. He made mistakes and a couple of poor decisions. A hundred years later, we must acknowledge that. Otherwise, our stories will only be a poor imitation of the person as he lived. We must do Carter the respect of treating him as a human, for good and for ill. In March 1939, Carter's story came to its end. But the story of his work, the story of King Tutankhamun's tomb, that will linger for many generations. Today, the tomb is probably the most famous archaeological discovery ever. Other finds come close, but Tutankhamun has a special place in archaeological history. Why? There are various reasons. First, the tomb was intact, mostly, and that gives special insight to the burial customs of ancient pharaohs. Prior to this discovery, archaeologists had traces of royal burials fragments from various tombs that gave a picture of the ancient rites. But most burials were robbed long ago, so in the early 1900s, the picture was like a jigsaw puzzle with many pieces missing. The discovery of King Tutankhamun's burial filled in many gaps. Now, scholars could examine a complete set of funerary equipment. They could study what they knew or guessed from other tombs, and see how that lined up with Tutankhamun. It wasn't a perfect comparison. The king's tomb is small, mostly undecorated, and it seems to have been improvised late in the day. But the contents and the arrangement are a valuable resource for scholars of funerary rites. The second reason for Tutankhamun's fame is timing. When the tomb came to light, communication technology had advanced enough to make the discovery global news. Photography and film gave new insights to the work, and people around the world could see the items from the tomb. Now, you didn't need to visit Egypt or have access to a museum. Tutankhamun's burial was open and visible to everyone, and so everyone knew of its wonders. Thirdly, the curse played its own part. Tabloid news and speculative media built up their own cycle of sensationalism. A lot of this was faulty, but there could be meaningful information sprinkled here and there. At the very least, people who did not care about archaeology, but loved a bit of gossip, might find their interest sparked by tales of curses and mummies. I would guess that at least a few people became interested in Egyptology as a science on the back of those reports. Then again, The curse of Tutankhamun's tomb is real. Not in the supernatural sense. No, the real curse is the friends we made along the way. 
The real curse is the overwhelming scale of this burial. Thousands of items, each one a valuable piece, were piled into the chambers. As a result, the tomb is a massive task. Documenting and studying those objects is quite simply too much for one person. Maybe with time and funding, a dedicated group could do it. But even a century later, most of Tutankhamun's burial remains a curiosity, awaiting proper study. So, in a sense, the curse of Tutankhamun's tomb is that it was so well preserved. With such a huge array of objects, scholars are kind of overwhelmed, and covering everything has proved an insurmountable challenge. Finally, the reason Tutankhamun's burial is so well known is that it makes a great story. In dramatic terms, all of the elements are there. A bold idea, undertaken by archaeologists against the odds. Struggles against social and personal challenges. Long years of digging, when the results seemed hopelessly small. And then, finally, a triumph. The moment of discovery when centuries vanished, and the excavators came face to face with Tutankhamun himself. When you boil the story down to its essential elements, it has the makings of a good drama. Of course, the reality was messier, and I hope I've captured some of those uncertainties, those controversies and details, to your satisfaction. For now, it is time to bring this story to its close. Three thousand years ago, the tomb of King Tutankhamun began its long, historic tale. Around 1334 BCE, give or take, the young pharaoh went to his eternal rest. High officials and priests conducted the ceremonies. Servants placed countless items in the tomb's four chambers. The king's mummy, wrapped and protected, went into its sarcophagus. And when all was said and done, The royal agents bricked up the doors, stamped their seals on the plaster, and closed the tomb. A few days, maybe weeks later, the tomb opened again. One night, a group of thieves stole into the crypt. They broke the doors and entered the antechamber and annex. Furtively, they looted small items of metal, linen, leather, and oils. The high-quality fats, cosmetics, and unguents were prime targets and the group helped themselves. In their haste, the thieves ransacked the annex and dropped many items as they fled. Royal officials inspected the tomb, tidied up some of the mess, and sealed the doors anew. They filled the corridors with rubble to add an extra layer of security. Then they added new seals to the doors. Their work was quick but efficient, and perhaps the tomb slumbered for a few more years. Eventually, thieves came again. They tunneled through the rubble, labouring for hours just to access the chambers. Once inside, they again looted high-value items. Jewellery was a prime target, and the group may have stolen 50 or 60% of Tutankhamun's trinkets. Again, the thieves were hasty, and as they fled, some may have dropped or lost items. Later, When royal officials returned, they placed some of those objects back. 
and they tidied up a bit of the damage. Then, yet again, they closed the doors, filled the corridor, and stamped their seals on the tomb. It was the second repair after the second robbery. Fortunately, this one held. Over the next two centuries, the tomb of King Tutankhamun experienced some splendid good fortune. First, a flash flood from a torrential downpour of rain laid mud and silt over the site. Then, around 1150 BCE, workers digging another tomb started dumping their rubble down the hill. Each basket of limestone, dirt, and debris added to the pile building up over Tutankhamun. Soon, the young king's tomb was utterly buried, hidden so thoroughly that no one knew it was there. Now, Tutankhamun enjoyed a long, peaceful sleep. For 30 centuries, the king's tomb lay underground, unknown and undisturbed. Events in the world passed by, and the king slept on. History became legend, legend became myth, and for 3,000 years, the king passed out of all knowledge. Until, when chance came, he ensnared a new era. The tomb came to the scholar Carter, who opened it late 1922, and the discovery consumed him. For ten years, Howard Carter laboured to document, preserve, and excavate this ancient pharaoh's tomb. In the end, the monument exhausted the archaeologist, and Carter died before he could fully publish the results. Now, a century later, the tomb remains somewhat underappreciated. Tourists flock to the Valley of the Kings, hoping to see the chambers, and they fill the museums of Cairo to see the treasures up close. And yet, academics struggle to examine and publish the thousands, literally thousands of items, in full scientific detail. Every few years, a new study will emerge, another piece in the larger puzzle. But time and funding are short, and this hampers their efforts. It will be a long time before the tomb of King Tutankhamun is fully, completely studied. Today, many visitors are disappointed when they see the tomb in person. Understandable. Compared to others in the Valley of the Kings, Tutankhamun's monument is small, it is sparsely decorated, and it is brightly lit. The valley itself is almost unrecognisable from Carter's day. It has paved roadways and a rest area just across from the tomb. With these modern amenities, the tomb loses some of its mystery, and faced with the reality, many people are blasé. Nevertheless, for those in the know, this monument remains a special place. It is not about the size or the art or even the treasure. It is about a story. A story that began 3,000 years ago, but only came to our attention 100 years ago. The human world is radically different from the days of Tutankhamun, and even of Howard Carter. And yet, the preservation of this tomb, and the excellent quality of its excavation, make the story more immediate than any other. Looking at Tutankhamun's burial, the chambers, the treasures, the art, the mummy, we can imagine a connection between ourselves and him. Compared to other pharaohs, Tutankhamun is less ancient history and more modern celebrity. And looking at his face, 
we can imagine something of ourselves in the young king. His untimely death and hasty burial touch a nerve in some people. It can encourage us to reflect on life, the shortness of our time on the earth, and the importance of our legacies. The burial of Tutankhamun reminds us, what we leave behind matters far more than what we are. Tutankhamun was not a great pharaoh in terms of power, splendor, or monuments, but the survival of his tomb is an invaluable resource. Studying these objects, we can understand more about his world, his society, and the things that those people did. Every treasure had an artist who made it. Every painting came from a brush guided by a skilled hand. The king's mummy did not happen naturally. Physicians, trained in the arts, prepared his corpse for eternity. And the tomb, although small, is the product of countless hours in labour. Every chip of limestone, every bit of dirt, had to be removed by hand. The tomb is not just a monument to King Tutankhamun. It is a monument to work and effort from many ancient people. When we enter these chambers, or see the treasures in a museum, we gaze on the work of humans just like ourselves. Their personalities are forgotten, but their deeds and their legacies endure. And that has a lesson for us all. In some respects, the tomb of King Tutankhamun is the ultimate ancient Egyptian monument. It's not the largest, it's not the grandest, but it has the best story. A unique set of circumstances in which he was buried. A fortunate turn of events that preserved him for generations. And the wonderful deeds of Howard Carter and his colleagues as they preserved and excavated this monument. Thanks to good luck and excellent excavation, we may connect with these items and these people for generations to come. Hello everyone, Dominic here. I would like to extend a massive thank you. If you have made it this far, please give yourself a round of applause. Long ago, when I started this podcast, I knew the tomb of Tutankhamun would be a high point in the narrative. And even then, I knew it would take a couple of episodes at least to cover. But the more I dug into the story, the more excellent titbits emerged, the more legends, misconceptions, and myths I encountered. And, well, you know me. I love telling these stories. And when a tale is this juicy, it is hard to resist diving into the depths. Believe it or not, this is the abridged version. There was plenty of content that I had to cut for time and storytelling. Hopefully, in the future, there will be opportunities to revisit these tales. For now, 
it is time to say farewell to King Tutankhamun's tomb. This episode is the product of your support. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. I am incredibly grateful to all of you, and I hope you enjoy the story. I would like to extend a special thank you to my supporters on Patreon.com. As this mini-series was so detailed, I could not have done it without you. All of you. So, let me thank each and every patron by name and tier. To the priests who honour the gods and satisfy their demands. My thanks to Stephen, Nidin, Kyla, Evan, Kendra, Jason, Andy and Chelsea, Yola, TJ, Terry and Linda. To the hereditary nobles who lead with splendour, all gratitude to Pat, Rodney, AJ, Karen, Colin, William, Andrew, Martin, Anders, Rabia, Sean, William, David, Mark, Louise, Mandy, Alexander, Connor, Karen, James, Stephen, Jan or Jan, Kate, Peter, Catherine, Logan, Perniel, Mykost, Connor, Simone, Dean from Ra Egyptian, Sarah, Elna, Christopher, Skip, Sean, Eric, Sandy and Stuart, Simon and Chrissy. To the overseers, your contributions build great foundations. This podcast rises from the sands, thanks to Jory or Yori, Ralph, Miriam, Dorian, Erin, Alfredo, Caroline, Simon, Barbara, David, Anne, Jean, Therese, Eneda, Kesreti Tui, Rachel, Pri, Miriam, Kristen, Mary, Michelle, Brian, Ray, Kurt, Torben, Amanda, Rebecca, Cynthia, Ryan, Bruce, Philip, Laura, Angela, Teresa, Jacob, Sarah, Carol, Jan or Jan, Diana, Nathan, Nach, Ryan, Timothy, Angelica, Sindra, Dixie, Belinda, John, Scott, Marissa, Inanna, Meg, Kerry, Christoph, Michael, Kristen, Chloe, Mitchell, Kate, Alex, Allison, Matthew, Georgia, Martin, Eileen, George, John, Matt, Coffee Saxophone, Dennis, Vanessa, Christian, Kelly, Paul, Brandon, Alan, Joel, Murky, Casey, Steve, Damien, Catherine, and Francine. And to the scribes who produce the annals and chronicle the works, every word is a product of your generosity. Thank you to Frank, Dieter, Peter, Isaac, Alfie, Mike, Thomas, Brendan, Jerry, Eric, Marietta, K.A., Morgan, MJ, Radiant, Wolfslider, Ross, Kimberly, Nicholas, Joni, Kevin, Jason, Abigail, Steve R., Joseph, William, Margit, Anna, Sarah, Dennis, Andrew, Crystal, Amy, Jonathan, Jonathan, Karen, Parijat, Tegan, Lucy, Jennifer, Christy, Kathy, Lisa, Ellen, Myrta, Brandy, Nicolette, Martin, Ail, Auntie, Mark, Claire, M, Jesse, Damon, Kay, Ellen, Joe, Madden, 
David, John, Emily, Cohen, Patricia, Manu, Gary, Christine, Martin, Stefan, Cheryl, Francis, Louise, Thomas, Vicky, Ali, Billowcat, Christopher, Tim, Jose, Sam, Ian, Rosemary, Valerie, Dylan, Nick, Stuart, Laurelyn, Dan, Justin, May, Heather, Kieran, Pamela, Jane, Simon, Daniel, Telesila, Ben, Heike, Donald, Valentine, Frank, Lars, Daniel, Bill, Jose, Sheila, Carolina, or Carolina, Nancy, Declan, Paul, Juan Salazar de Leon, 10 out of 10, Alan, Mike, Jesse and Shari, Howard, Alistair, Michael, Cecil, Loris, Leslie, Naya, John, Ava, James, Paul, Adrian, Joanne, Wanda, Nata, Jeff, Alain, Nikea, Claire, Tobias, Andy, George, Lane, Claudia, Joseph, Dave, Eric, Horse Lover Fat, that's curious, Michael, Denise, Rusty, Chris, Sandy, Chris again, and Julian. To the farmers, without whom the crops would wither, the canals would dry, and the land would perish. My thanks to Hilary, Megan, Lakshana, Grayson, David, Fiona, Richard, Charles, Niles, Michael, Eric, the Decipher Sci-Fi Podcast, Lucas, Padraig, Chris, Dillo, Benjamin, Lynn, Oro, Robert, Sam, Tamara, Dirty Snowball, Marek, Mark, Jenny, Northern Yeti, huh, I thought you were fictional, Cheryl, Alberto, Julian, Adrian, Bruno, Juan, Justine, Zach, T-Man, Joshua, Alex, Melanie, and Nancy. Thank you, every single one of you. Your generosity is incredible, and I am most grateful. I hope you have enjoyed this mini-series and this small dedication. May it go some way to paying my debt to you. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the show.